Hello and welcome to Leftist Reading, a podcast where I'm a leftist and I read things. Today we're continuing with Women, Race and Class by Angela Y. Davis. We have the first half of a chapter, it's a little bit shorter because there was a pretty neat stopping point we're going to go with. And then the rest of the chapter will be next week. Content warnings for this episode include birth control, abortion, self-induced abortion, infanticide, rape, and racism. They all occur to varying extents, but just be warned that they are present somewhere in the chapter. With all that set up, let's get started on reading this chapter. Chapter 12. Racism, Birth Control, and Reproductive Rights When 19th century feminists raised the demand for voluntary motherhood, the campaign for birth control was born. Its proponents were called radicals, and they were subjected to the same mockery as had befallen the initial advocates of woman suffrage. Voluntary motherhood was considered audacious, outrageous, and outlandish by those who insisted that wives had no right to refuse to satisfy their husbands' sexual urges. Eventually, of course, the right to birth control, like women's right to vote, would be more or less taken for granted by US public opinion. Yet in 1970, a full century later, the call for legal and easily accessible abortions was no less controversial than the issue of voluntary motherhood, which had originally launched the birth control movement in the United States. Birth control, individual choice, safe contraceptive methods, as well as abortions when necessary, is a fundamental prerequisite for the emancipation of women. Since the right of birth control is obviously advantageous to women of all classes and races, it would appear that even vastly dissimilar women's groups would have attempted to unite around this issue. In reality, however, the birth control movement has seldom succeeded in uniting women of different social backgrounds, and rarely have the movement's leaders popularized the genuine concerns of working-class women. Moreover, Arguments advanced by birth control advocates have sometimes been based on blatantly racist premises. The progressive potential of birth control remains indisputable. But in actuality, the historical record of this movement leaves much to be desired in the realm of challenges to racism and class exploitation. The most important victory of the contemporary birth control movement was won during the early 1970s, when abortions were at last declared legal. Having emerged during the infancy of the new women's liberation movement, the struggle to legalize abortions incorporated all the enthusiasm and the militancy of the young movement. By January 1973, the abortion rights campaign had reached a triumphant culmination. In Roe v. Wade, 410 U.S., and Doe v. Bolton, 410 U.S., the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that a woman's right to personal privacy implied her right to decide whether or not to have an abortion. The ranks of the abortion rights campaign did not include substantial numbers of women of color. Given the racial composition of the larger women's liberation movement, this was not at all surprising. When questions were raised about the absence of racially oppressed women in both the larger movement and in the abortion rights campaign, two explanations were commonly proposed in the discussions and literature of the period. Women of color were overburdened by their people's fight against racism, and or they had not yet become conscious of the centrality of sexism. 
But the real meaning of the almost lily-white complexion of the abortion rights campaign was not to be found in an ostensibly myopic or underdeveloped consciousness among women of color. The truth lay buried in the ideological underpinnings of the birth control movement itself. The failure of the abortion rights campaign to conduct a historical self-evaluation led to a dangerously superficial appraisal of black people's suspicious attitudes toward birth control in general. Granted, when some black people unhesitatingly equated birth control with genocide, it did appear to be an exaggerated, even paranoiac, reaction. Yet, white abortion rights activists missed a profound message. For underlying these cries of genocide were important clues about the history of the birth control movement. This movement, for example, had been known to advocate involuntary sterilization, a racist form of mass birth control. If ever women would enjoy the right to plan their pregnancies, legal and accessible birth control measures and abortions would have to be complemented by an end to sterilization abuse. As for the abortion rights campaign itself, how could women of color fail to grasp its urgency? They were far more familiar than their white sisters with the murderously clumsy scalpels of inept abortionists seeking profit in illegality. In New York, for instance, during the several years preceding the decriminalization of abortion in that state, some 80% of the deaths caused by illegal abortions involved black and Puerto Rican women. Footnote 1. Immediately afterward, women of color received close to half of all the legal abortions. If the abortion rights campaign of the early 1970s needed to be reminded that women of color wanted desperately to escape the backroom quack abortionists, they should have also realized that these same women were not about to express pro-abortion sentiments. They were in favor of abortion rights, which did not mean that they were proponents of abortion. When black and Latino women resort to abortions in such large numbers, the stories they tell are not so much about their desire to be free of the pregnancy, but rather about the miserable social conditions which dissuade them from bringing new lives into the world. Black women have been aborting themselves since the earliest days of slavery. Many slave women refuse to bring children into a world of interminable forced labor, where chains and floggings and sexual abuse for women were the everyday conditions of life. A doctor practicing in Georgia around the middle of the last century noticed that abortions and miscarriages were far more common among his slave patients than among the white women he treated. According to the physician, either black women worked too hard, or, quote, as the planters believe, the blacks are possessed of a secret by which they destroy the fetus at an early stage of gestation. All country practitioners are aware of the frequent complaints of planters about the unnatural tendency in the African female to destroy her offspring. End quote. Footnote 2. Expressing shock that whole families of women failed to have any children. Footnote 3. This doctor never considered how unnatural it was to raise children under the slave system. The previously mentioned episode of Margaret Garner, a fugitive slave who killed her own daughter and attempted suicide herself when she was captured by the slave catchers, is a case in point. Quote, she rejoiced that the girl was dead. Now she would never know what a woman suffers as a slave, and pleaded to be tried for murder. I will go singing to the gallows rather than be returned to slavery. End quote. Footnote 4. 
Why were self-imposed abortions and reluctant acts of infanticide such common occurrences during slavery? Not because black women had discovered solutions to their predicament, but rather because they were desperate. Abortions and infanticides were acts of desperation, motivated not by the biological birth process, but by the oppressive conditions of slavery. Most of these women, no doubt, would have expressed their deepest resentment had someone hailed their abortions as a stepping stone toward freedom. During the early abortion rights campaign, it was too frequently assumed that legal abortions provided a viable alternative to the myriad problems posed by poverty. As if having fewer children could create more jobs, higher wages, better schools, etc. etc. This assumption reflected the tendency to blur the distinction between abortion rights and the general advocacy of abortions. The campaign often failed to provide a voice for women who wanted the right to legal abortions while deploring the social conditions that prohibited them from bearing more children. The renewed offensive against abortion rights that erupted during the latter half of the 1970s has made it absolutely necessary to focus more sharply on the needs of poor and racially oppressed women. By 1977, the passage of the Hyde Amendment in Congress had mandated the withdrawal of federal funding for abortions, causing many state legislatures to follow suit. Black, Puerto Rican, Chicana, and Native American Indian women, together with their impoverished white sisters, were thus effectively divested of the right to legal abortions. Since surgical sterilizations, funded by the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare, remained free on demand, more and more poor women have been forced to opt for permanent infertility. What is urgently required is a broad campaign to defend the reproductive rights of all women, and especially those women whose economic circumstances often compel them to relinquish the right to reproduction itself. Women's desire to control their reproductive system is probably as old as human history itself. As early as 1844, the United States Practical Receipt Book contained, among its many recipes for food, household chemicals, and medicines, receipts for birth preventative lotions. To make Hannay's preventative lotion, for example, quote, take pearlash, one part, water, six parts, mix and filter, keep it in closed bottles, and use it, with or without soap, immediately after connection. End quote. Footnote 5. For Abernethy's preventative lotion, Quote, take bichloride of mercury, 25 parts, milk of almonds, 400 parts, alcohol, 100 parts, rose water, 1000 parts, immerse the glands in a little of the mixture, infallible, if used in proper time. End quote. Footnote 6. While women have probably always dreamed of infallible methods of birth control, it was not until the issue of women's rights in general became the focus of an organized movement that reproductive rights could emerge as a legitimate demand. In an essay entitled Marriage, written during the 1850s, Sarah Grimke argued for a right on the part of the woman to decide when she shall become a mother, how often, and under what circumstances. Footnote 7. According to one physician's humorous observation, Grimke agreed that if wives and husbands alternatively gave birth to their children, quote, no family would ever have more than three, the husband bearing one and the wife two, end quote, footnote eight. But as she insists, 
the right to decide this matter has been almost wholly denied to women. Footnote 9. Sarah Grimke advocated women's right to sexual abstinence. Around the same time, the well-known emancipated marriage of Lucy Stone and Henry Blackwell took place. These abolitionists and women's rights activists were married in a ceremony that protested women's traditional relinquishment of their rights to their persons, names, and property. In agreeing that as husband, he had no right to the custody of the wife's person, footnote 10, Henry Blackwell promised that he would not attempt to impose the dictates of his sexual desires upon his wife. The notion that women could refuse to submit to their husband's sexual demands eventually became the central idea of the call for voluntary motherhood. By the 1870s, when the woman suffrage movement had reached its peak, feminists were publicly advocating voluntary motherhood. In a speech delivered in 1873, Victoria Woodhull claimed that, quote, The wife who submits to sexual intercourse against her wishes or desires virtually commits suicide, while the husband who compels it commits murder, and ought just as much to be punished for it, as though he strangled her to death for refusing him. End quote. Footnote 11. Woodhull of, Woodhull, of course, was quite notorious as a proponent of free love, her defense of a woman's right to abstain from sexual intercourse within marriage as a means of controlling her pregnancies was associated with Woodhull's overall attack on the institution of marriage. It was not a coincidence that women's consciousness of their reproductive rights was born within the organized movement for women's political equality. Indeed, if women remained forever burdened by incessant childbirths and frequent miscarriages, they would hardly be able to exercise the political rights they might win. Moreover, women's new dreams of pursuing careers and other paths of self-development outside marriage and motherhood could only be realized if they could limit and plan their pregnancies. In this sense, the slogan Voluntary Motherhood contained a new and genuinely progressive vision of womanhood. At the same time, however, this vision was rigidly bound to the lifestyle enjoyed by the middle classes and the bourgeoisie. The aspirations underlying the demand for voluntary motherhood did not reflect the conditions of working class women, engaged as they were in a far more fundamental fight for economic survival. Since this first call for birth control was associated with goals which could only be achieved by women possessing material wealth, vast numbers of poor and working class women would find it rather difficult to identify with the embryonic birth control movement. Toward the end of the 19th century, the white birth rate in the United States suffered a significant decline. Since no contraceptive innovations had been publicly introduced, the drop in the birth rate implied women were substantially curtailing their sexual activity. By 1890, the typical native-born white woman was bearing no more than four children. Footnote 12. Since US society was becoming increasingly urban, this new birth pattern should not have been a surprise. While farm life demanded large families, they became dysfunctional within the context of city life. Yet, this phenomenon was publicly interpreted in a racist and anti-working class fashion by the ideologues of rising monopoly capitalism. Since native-born white women were bearing fewer children, the specter of race suicide was raised in official circles. In 1905, President Theodore Roosevelt concluded his Lincoln Day dinner speech with the proclamation that race purity must be maintained. 
footnote 13. By 1906, he blatantly equated the falling birth rate among native-born whites with the impending threat of race suicide. In his State of the Union message that year, Roosevelt admonished the well-born white women who engaged in willful sterility, the ones in for which the penalty is national death, race suicide. Footnote 14. These comments were made during a period of accelerating racist ideology, and of great waves of race riots and lynchings on the domestic scene. Moreover, President Roosevelt himself was attempting to muster support for the US seizure of the Philippines, the country's most recent imperialist venture. How did the birth control movement respond to Roosevelt's accusation that their cause was promoting race suicide? The president's propagandistic ploy was a failure, according to a leading historian of the birth control movement, for, ironically, it led to greater support for its advocates. Yet, as Linda Gordon maintains, this controversy, quote, also brought to the forefront those issues that most separated feminists from the working class and the poor. Footnote 15. This happened in two ways. First, the feminists were increasingly emphasizing birth control as a route to careers and higher education, goals out of reach of the poor with or without birth control. In the context of the whole feminist movement, the race-suicide episode was an additional factor identifying feminism almost exclusively with the aspirations of the more privileged women of the society. Second, the pro-birth control feminists began to popularize the idea that poor people had a moral obligation to restrict the size of their families, because large families create a drain on the taxes and charity expenditures of the wealthy, and because poor children were less likely to be superior. End quote. Footnote 16. The acceptance of the race suicide thesis, to a greater or lesser extent, by women such as Julia Ward Howe and Ida Husted Harper, reflected the suffrage movement's capitulation to the racist posture of the Southern women. If the suffragists acquiesced to arguments invoking the extension of the ballot to women as the saving grace of white supremacy, then birth control advocates either acquiesced to or supported the new arguments invoking birth control as a means of preventing the proliferation of the lower classes and as an antidote to race suicide. Race suicide could be prevented by the introduction of birth control among black people, immigrants, and the poor in general. In this way, the prosperous whites of solid Yankee stock could maintain their superior numbers within the population. Thus, class bias and racism crept into the birth control movement when it was still in its infancy. More and more, it was assumed within birth control circles that poor women, black and immigrant alike, had a moral obligation to restrict the size of their families. Footnote 17. What was demanded as a right for the privileged came to be interpreted as a duty for the poor. And that'll conclude our reading for this week. We will finish off this chapter next week, and I'll put my thoughts about it at the end there. If you have any thoughts of your own, questions, comments, corrections, suggestions, you can email leftistreading at gmail.com or contact the show at leftistreading on Twitter. This show is hosted on the Abnormal Mapping Network. You can go to abnormalmapping.com to find it and lots of other leftist podcasts. Our intro and outro music is Decisions by Eric Medias. You can find it and more of his work on soundimage.org. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening, and keep reading.